American public should know that this president is the first president to acknowledge uh, the existence of uh, Havana syndrome or anonymous health incidents. The health and well-being of American public servants is a paramount priority to the administration and we take uh, extremely seriously reports by our personnel of anomalous health incidents and we are of course um, uh, investigating incidents in which personnel have reported experiencing sensory phenomena such as sound, pressure, or heat concurrent with or followed by physical symptoms such as sudden onset vertigo, nausea, and head or neck pain. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a somber episode of American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, and here, as always, with my friend Derek Davison. And this episode is dedicated to all of our comrades in the deep state who are suffering from Havana syndrome. We hope you get better soon, and thank you very much. So, Derek, why don't we start with what's been going on in the world? And that is, of course, Havana syndrome. So, so what what appears to be the case with this deadly virus that has been penetrating the deep state? Is it, is it from Russia? Is it from China? Is it from Venezuela? Is it from Iran? What has been attacking our beautiful troops? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm a little upset that the CIA did me like this because I, I felt the last couple of days like I had Havana syndrome. I had a little headache. I was feeling a little. <laughs> A little sad, a little melancholy. <laughs> Felt like I finally had been targeted, but now yeah, you missed come an out FX a, the first time, the first time in report. years. <laughs> <laughs> now, a new report, brand new report, uh, or well, I guess I don't. They haven't released an official report, but uh, they've released it through one of their uh, t- usual media outlets, NBC News. Uh, Ken Delanian, who I, I think. At one point, there was some, an allegation that he actually had a CIA handler, but I don't know. I don't know what the uh, the truth of that is, and I'm not making any claims. Uh, if any lawyers are listening, uh, we're not making any claims about that. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah. Yes, so this they, is all parody and satire. <laughs> all absolutely. We're an entertainment program, just like <laughs> yeah, everything we everything say always and forever. Yeah, this is entertainment only. It's not not meant to be taken seriously. Uh, <laughs> so NBC reported uh, just today, uh, or well, actually, I guess it was late. Uh, Wednesday evening. No, like it was great for the West Coast because you could tweet it and be like, "I'm definitely going to get likes on this bad boy." So, it was awesome. so the, they dropped this at eleven o'clock at night on Wednesday. Now I'm looking at the timestamp. Uh, new intelligence assessment. I'm just going to read the first paragraph of this story from NBC News. In a new intelligence assessment, the CIA has ruled out that the mysterious symptoms known as Havana syndrome are the result of a sustained global campaign by a hostile power aimed at hundreds of U.S. diplomats and spies. Even reading that sentence, it's absurd, but okay. Uh, Six people briefed on the matter told NBC News. Uh, In about two dozen cases, the agency cannot rule out 
foreign involvement. So they're still holding on here. They're still holding on to the dream, uh, including many of the cases that originated at the U.S. Embassy in Havana uh, beginning in 2016. Another group of cases is considered unresolved. I don't know what that means. Uh, but in hundreds of other cases of possible <laughs> symptoms, the agency has found plausible alternative explanations, uh, the sources said. Uh, these this alternative is such a shock. Oh, my God. Yeah, what, I'm what a stunned. Shock. I'm really stunned by this. Derek, uh, the, do we have to the, give back all of our Kickstarter money to the you know $400,000 we raised to help out Havana syndrome victims, or do we I get to keep I, that? Yeah, now? no, I, I, I uh, that's going to be a problem for me. But uh, uh, we'll have to, we'll have to look into that. We'll have to get the lawyers on the case. We've spent it on uh, the American prestige compound. So um, the the. Alternative explanations, uh, my understanding is they range from pre-existing health conditions to environmental uh, impacts, uh, you know, something, environmental factors, I guess is the the way they put it, uh, or stress. So maybe people were just feeling a little stressed out about their their jobs maintaining the empire, and it made them feel bad. Um, Did they uh, say anything about guilt? That would be like if this was the fifties, they would have talked about Freudian guilt. They said nothing about guilt. Did they? I haven't seen anything about guilt. Yeah. That could probably be lumped in with stress. I would think. Yeah, with stress, broadly speaking, um, I think it's a lot of guilt. Uh, frankly, I think it's a lot of guilt um, with people who no longer believe in institutions that they've dedicated their lives to serving. It's a broader uh, it's a broader reflection of the delegitimization of American institutions. I think this is like literal a bodily um, function of that. Um, I, yeah, I think I, I think that may have a lot to do with it. Um, I, I, I mean, we should say they're still holding on to uh, a core number of cases, about two dozen. Uh, and the real diehards in the Havana syndrome movement, the people who have been pushing this for a while are suggesting that, uh, well, sure, of course, they were overclassifying things as uh, Havana syndrome, but, you know, we still know there's something going on here. Uh, so they're, they're not letting the dream die. And I would expect the Biden administration is this is just a CIA report and they've been very yep. careful to say oh, it's yes. just interim it's not it's not a final conclusion i would expect the administration to to try to distance itself a little bit from this and say look we're still looking into this it's not you know nothing is set in stone and what i love uh, about this is this is when everybody stops talking about it this is when people own the left for trusting the CIA <laughs> i saw someone tweet that today it's like oh yeah now you trust the CIA people who literally spend their lives just re- reporting quote unquote on cia I mean, people, press yeah, releases who, who swallowed this whole thing completely and built I love journalistic careers around it i mean there's whole outlets there's uh you know whole outlets that have done like covered this story in so much detail and you know they're not going to let it go but uh man it's uh it's fascinating I love this country. We we this country is the most. Well, well, just just so you know that we're going to keep you updated on the uh, terrible tale of Havana syndrome as the story develops over the months and the years. In fact, because we're we're going to go deep in investigation onto this. That's right. And and if anybody is targeting me with a directed energy weapon, uh, please stop doing that. Because uh, uh, actually, please do it more for me. <laughs> just, just just keep on going. <laughs> Ramp it up, baby. That's that's the that's the the word of the day. Just you know, not doing nothing about climate, doing nothing about inequality, doing nothing about student debt. Just hit me more with more of those energy weapons. I like it. It's it's of the era. Uh, so why don't we move over to a uh, more serious issue, and that is the Houthi attack um, on Abu Dhabi. Um, so so Derek, what's been going on there? Yeah. So um, earlier this week uh, on Monday. 
it looks like, I mean, well, it looks like it's it, everybody's sort of admitted it by now, so I shouldn't uh, couch myself. The uh, Yemeni rebels, uh, Ansar Allah, if you want to be uh, exact about it, or the Houthis, uh, as they're uh, colloquially known, uh, attacked uh, a couple of targets in, in Abu Dhabi. And um, by attacked, I mean, like, it sounds like they threw everything in the kitchen sink uh, at the airport, the Abu Dhabi airport, uh, and a, a facility uh, owned by Abu Dhabi's national oil company. The rebel movement spokesperson warned Monday's suspected drone strikes will be the first of many if the UAE continues its recently escalated support for anti-Houthi factions. I'm talking about drones, missiles, rockets, whatever they had that that had the range to reach uh, these targets. They fired. Uh, at least three people were killed in the uh, National Oil Company strike, which set off uh, a couple of um, kind of tanks that were, you know, storage tanks filled with oil. I don't have any information on casualties in the airport attack but needless to say this is a major escalation uh the houthis have carried out sort of uh the occasional small drone incursion strike whatever you want to call it uh against abu dhabi in the past but or well against the uae in the past i should say but nothing on this uh order of magnitude uh the saudi-led coalition which the uae is sort of part of they've they've withdrawn their direct involvement uh in yemen but they're still supporting uh some of the the kind of paramilitary factions that are fighting on the government side uh they conducted airstrikes uh, in retaliation on sana uh that killed at least 14 people i've seen 20 uh maybe more than that uh so a, a major um, and uh, typically uh, with the Saudis, uh, you know, highly targeted uh, to avoid civilian casualties, uh, retaliation from them. Uh, there are a lot of questions now about uh, what this means for the war. The fighting on the ground in Yemen has been going against the rebels for some time now. Uh, the, the fighting's mainly concentrated around uh, the city called Marib. Uh, which is located kind of in the central, north-central part of the country. Uh, the government coalition has been pushing the Houthis back, uh, largely due to the involvement of uh, uh, one of these UAE proxy forces that's kind of entered the battle and seems to have uh, helped turn the tide. Uh, hence, I think, the the strike on Abu Dhabi. Uh so that's, you know, that's an interesting moment. The, the tide seems to be turning a little bit on the ground. Uh, but this strike now raises the possibility of bringing the UAE back into the war in a more direct way. Uh, it probably complicates efforts to negotiate uh, peace. Not that that was uh, those efforts were going very well anyway. Uh, it also may wind up uh, landing the Houthis, the the rebels, back on the the U.S. list of foreign terrorist organizations. Uh, the Biden administration is one of its, you know, is on its way out the door. One of its last uh, acts related to Yemen put the Houthis on the terrorist list. Uh, the Biden administration took them off in order to facilitate potential peace talks because having them on the list really does make it difficult to interact with them legally. Uh, Biden, Joe Biden, has now said he's considering. Uh, putting them back on the terrorism list. The UAE is asking for that. So, uh, you know, we'll we'll have to wait and see what the bigger impact here is. So is it unclear what this is going to mean for the war in general? Um, and so this is just, uh, are we in a waiting moment or does this augur a particular move or how the United States might respond given these new developments? 
I mean, I think if the U.S. puts the Houthis back on the terrorism list, that's probably an end to even the meager, you know, kind of peace outreach efforts that the administration has been making. I don't think it's going to cause the Biden administration to rethink its overall approach to Yemen, which has anyway been sort of a continuation of support for the Saudis. I think it does mean that you're going to see the war continue. Uh, not, I mean, kind the of war may have continued basically. anyway, but but yeah, sort of indefinitely. I, I felt like uh, when the fighting around Ma'rib started to go in a different direction, that might have been a window where you could have gotten everybody to sort of... Uh, sit down. I mean, for the for months now, it's been sort of the Houthis advancing, uh, which meant that they didn't really have a lot of incentive to come to the uh, the table until they had, you know, kind of uh, seen their offensive t- to its conclusion and got, gotten as much leverage as they could. Um, the Saudis have been uh, unwilling to lift their blockade uh, on northern Yemen, which is one of the conditions that the, the rebels have had for peace talks. You know, I don't see this uh, encouraging the Saudis to uh, kind of rethink that position. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like what might have been a, a brief window to kind of say, hey, let's let's sit down and talk about this uh, is probably gone now. And so we're back to sort of just indefinitely grinding on. So what, one thing I want to ask before we move on, I, I think on this podcast, we've been talking a, a lot about what, what I've termed hegemonic stabilization, and, and people are kind of assessing Biden's first year, um, given that it's about a year since he's been, uh, you know, ascended to office, <laughs> you know, um, really went up that, that, that staircase. And so um, what do you think this means, if anything, in terms of the global U.S. US geostrategic position? How does it relate to things like leaving Afghanistan, but allowing this war to kind of continue forever? Is it just sort of the incoherence of foreign policy? Or is there a broader lesson to be drawn? I mean, I I think it's, there's a there's a definite incoherence for the United States, in this region, in particular, the US is worried about great power competition with China, China is making huge inroads in in the Persian Gulf region, uh, specifically in the Middle East more generally, by having a no problems with anybody approach uh, to their foreign policy. There's, you know, there was a story, I think, uh, earlier this week about uh, China trying to sort of uh, help broker talks between Iran and the Saudis, which is a big kind of uh, would, would be a huge deal in terms of stabilizing uh, the Persian Gulf. Uh, and, and they're able to do this because they haven't taken sides in that conflict and they have commercial relationships and, and sort of uh, friendly relations with both countries. Um, for, the, for the United States, that's I mean, that's a role that the U.S., if it's really interested in sort of great power competition and and uh, keeping you know keeping China at bay and establishing or you know reinforcing its uh, hegemony in these regions. That's the role the United States should be playing. Uh, but we've taken sides in these. We, we do this all, all over the world. I mean, we take sides in these local conflicts and and wind up kind of undercutting uh, our own influence in the process. And and I think that's you know Yemen has been a, a symptom of that. The the U.S. kind of. Uh, choosing to go all in to support the Saudi war effort um, prevents us really from prevents the United States from playing a more productive role. And, and I mean, we saw early in the Biden administration, they sort of tried to do this uh, pivot from, uh, you know, they, they insisted that they weren't supporting Saudi offensive operations anymore and then said uh, and then started complaining that the Houthis weren't participating in uh, like U.S. led 
mediation efforts, which of course they weren't because the United States is a belligerent in the conflict. Like you can't pivot. You can't make that pivot. Uh, How dare on you? A dime. How dare, um, How dare yeah, you? We'll see, I mean, this is part of the arrogance, I think, of the, the U.S. Uh, foreign policy community that we just sort of say whatever we're doing at any given moment, uh, you know, people should just accept that. And, uh, you know, other other players should just accept that and, and treat us as though we're good faith actors. It's uh, really which, zombie logic at this point. It's literally argument without argument. You're just saying something right. without backing it up whatsoever because you're so embedded in a particular ideology. Right. And it's it's a it's a lack of, uh, you know, I mean, whatever term you want to use, I, I use strategic empathy, but it's a lack of being able to uh, or, or e- even interested in sort of treating uh, other parties in these situations as three-dimensional, you know, fully empowered uh, actors. You just treat them as these sort of cutouts, um, and and you have no consideration for what they might be thinking or how they might react or what they might, um, you, you know, what their interests might be. And that's the way we've we've operated in Yemen uh, with with respect to the rebels and and Iran, sort of just. Uh, you know, how dare they? Uh, basically, like, there's no, uh, there's no sense of like, what do they want? What do they want out of this? You know, how can we uh, talk to them or adjust what we're doing to, to, um, you know, get some credibility with with them to, if we're going to make this pivot uh, to being a peace broker, and and we just we don't care, basically. Well, as Americans, I don't think we should uh, really think about anyone else. And uh, speaking about <laughs> American statements on things. Uh, Derek, what's been going on in Ukraine? Biden recently made a statement about Ukraine. There seems to have been some development. So do you retract your prediction that there is not going to be a war or do you stand by it with that American <laughs> prestige guarantee? I, I you know, I, I've, I've kind of taken the guarantee off. I, I still don't think there's going to be a war, but but the longer these tensions go on, the the more I, I sort of waver on my uh, my stance here. Well, there's been a couple of things since last week um, that have happened. One is on Friday, last Friday, uh, the administration accused Russia of uh, embedding agents in Ukraine with the intent of carrying out a false flag operation uh, that would justify then a, a Russian invasion. They say Russia has pre-positioned a group of operatives to conduct false flag operations in the eastern region of Ukraine. Russian officials have called this, quote, total disinformation. They even issued uh, some sanctions against people. I don't know that they went into specifics, but they issued some sanctions against people supposedly acting on Russia's behalf uh, inside Ukraine. Um, So that, I mean, that was sort of interesting. The Russians denied it. um, But again, it's kind of like coming at the end of a week of failed diplomatic efforts to try and calm the situation down with that actually probably did the opposite. Uh, It was another sort of uh, bad sign, let's say. Uh, Earlier this week, however, we learned that diplomacy is not dead. It's only mostly dead, which is we know from the Princess Bride means it's slightly alive. Uh, Tony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, will be meeting uh, with uh, Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, uh, on Friday. He's doing a little tour of Europe. He went to uh, Ukraine on Wednesday. I think he's in Germany today, uh, Thursday. So he'll be meeting with with Lavrov on Friday. Uh, I don't know what they're going to talk about. I mean, last week was a, a diplomatic blitz that got nothing accomplished. Uh, they just talked past each other. Uh, Lavrov is, says he's going to expect 
Blinken to have a written response to Russia's uh, list of security uh, concerns or demands uh, about NATO expansion, uh, etc. Blinken has already said he's not going to have a written response to those things. So that uh, that could get them off on a bad foot uh, right uh, right from the start. So does this mean that there's actually a real risk of war and Putin is going to actually invade Ukraine? Well, so, okay, so this takes us to our other uh, development, which was, I gather, in his uh, summing up my first year in office press conference on Tuesday evening. Biden was asked about Ukraine and about the, you know, what the U.S. is planning to do in response. um, And he seems, again, I didn't watch the press conference. I I, I hate those things, but uh, he seems to have had, if I can uh, gather from the written accounts of it, basically a mini debate in his own head as he was answering the question uh, of what the United States is going to do. And so as he was kind of thinking out loud as part of this debate, he started talking about, well, you know, if it's a full invasion, uh, you know, that would be a, a really uh, heavy response. But if it's just a minor incursion is the term he used, right. uh, then we'd have to think about what to do in that case. And, you know, it's not we're not really clear. Russia will be held accountable. If it invades, and it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, etc. But if they actually do what they're capable of doing with the force amassed on the border, it is going to be a disaster for Russia. Uh, which speaks to a level of indecisiveness, not just within the administration, but, but within, I think, um, NATO and, and the European alliance. There, there's, you know, for, for example, questions about uh, whether Germany would be willing to cut the Nord Stream pipeline and, you know, whether there, there really is a, is a willingness to take some, some right. harsh steps in, in response. Uh, so this minor incursion thing has set off a little bit of a, a, a kerfuffle. You know, what was Biden doing? Did he undermine? Uh, you know, the threat that we're supposed to be using to kind of uh, force Russia to back off or, or kind of, you know, uh, get them to back off. Uh, it's possible the, the White House kind of panicked and in response and, and uh, started trying to clarify uh, what Biden meant. And, and, you know, he wasn't really, you know, he didn't really mean, uh, that there's not going to be a heavy response. He was just talking about like, uh, you know, if they do something like a cyber, uh, war, which, which, you know, a cyber attack, which, uh, you know, his sort of a lame non-denial denial. I think he just kind of made a gaffe, which happens sometimes, uh, Not with Joe with Biden. the 78-year-old president and, and especially Joe Biden, that. who's you know, made a lot of gaffes in his career. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how much this undermines anything, but, but certainly I think, um, he was probably revealing, uh, a little more than, than the administration would have wanted him to reveal about, uh, the level of indecisiveness about what you're, you're going to be prepared to do. Uh, he's not wrong. I mean, I, I will say he's not wrong. If there's only a, a minor, Russian action, whatever that may be, you don't want to throw every sanction of the book at them in response to that, because then you you don't have anywhere to go if they decide to escalate further. I mean, the the response to that is then, well, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to do this to me over this uh, just a minor thing, then why don't I just invade? Because there's nothing else you can uh, you can do to sort of punish me. So the, he's not wrong. I just think uh, maybe saying it out loud was not uh, what the administration was hoping to do. I will say there is a uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, today, Thursday, 
from the secretary of the Ukrainian Security Council, whose name is Alexei Danilov. Uh, it's an interview with him. It's not a piece by him. But um, he kind of agrees with me, I think, which is uh, to say that uh, he thinks the Russians are more interested in destabilizing Ukraine than in invading it. Uh, they don't want to incur the costs of an invasion, and they really don't have to as long as they sort of threaten to invade or threaten to do this or that. They can keep Ukraine off balance, uh, the Ukrainian government off balance, and they can, you know, make in perpetuity. Really, they can uh, they can keep Ukraine from from being a a good candidate for NATO membership uh, by keeping it unstable. And and I, I think in the long run, that's the smarter play. Now, that doesn't mean that that's what what they will do. Uh, but it is the thing that that gives me pause as to you know whether or not I think there's going to be an invasion. So I want to ask a larger question because I think in the last few weeks people have been discussing Ukraine and Taiwan and sort of tandem um, in, in the sense of you would the U.S. Um, what would the U.S. do if there was another great power making a serious bid for something that the U.S. didn't want it to do. Does this suggest anything sort of larger or the two, or are, in your opinion, the two situations so different and the relative power positions of China and Russia so different that one can't draw lessons? Or does this suggest that regardless of what the U.S. discourse or rhetoric might be in terms of fighting an actual war or ramping up tensions, the U.S. under Biden is less willing to do that than people in the foreign policy establishment might suppose or want. I mean, look, I don't think it's unique to the Biden administration. Um, you know, we can talk about the relative uh, power uh, overall of, of Russia and China. Um, you know, China is certainly the ascendant uh, kind of global uh, heavyweight. Russia is not. Um, but militarily, uh, they are still, you know, they're still powerful enough that I don't think the United States uh, wants to get in a war with them. And I think that's true of any administration, not uh, not just this one. I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like uh, in both cases, this is sort of your your calling a bluff that the United States has has been making for a long time that we, for decades, we can yeah. uh, defend anywhere, any place that we just sort of go around the world kind of picking up uh, these de facto security commitments that right. we really Full spectrum if, dominance is right. Term. It, it, yeah. if, if push comes to shove, uh, we're not going to going to fulfill. We're not going to protect these places because we're not prepared to to incur that level of cost. But, you know, we, we want to project uh, the image of the globally dominant superpower. So we, we kind of, uh, try to bluff our way through these things. And, and, you know, you have, uh, in, uh, a couple of countries that are, that are going to call that bluff. Yeah. That's what I think is going to be the story of the next 15 years. I still think the United States will be the prime power, but I really do think that they're going to have to give up some of these regional commitments that were always, I would say, chimerical in the first place that were really going to require a lot of U.S. commitment uh, to defend that that was never really going to be uh, and that, that they were the country was never really going to defend. Do you think that's wrong or what's your take? No, I, I do. I do. I think that's correct. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, the the. The wild card here always to me is uh, what happens if uh, there's another pandemic that's more serious than this one what happens if there's some global crisis what happens if climate change you know uh the effects of climate change start to really snowball uh in which case you know even russia and china are going to have bigger 
issues to deal with than, you know, Taiwan or Ukraine or any of these, uh, uh, these sort of cross border things. They're going to have, you know, uh, everybody's going to have much bigger fish to fry. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think if things continue in the way that they are now, uh, over the next 20 years, you'll see, uh, these commitments challenged and, and you'll see the United States have to back away from them. But I also think at some point in that period of time, you're going to see another, truly global emergency that we're going to all mismanage because this is what we do anymore. Uh, and that, that kind of, you know, throws these, these sorts of predictions into, to some uncertainty. Well, I just hope that the U S policy will be as incoherent and confusing as possible. So why don't we end (laughs) by pogo with a particularly incoherent U S policy? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Why don't we go to, uh, to North Korea and, um, what happened with this recent missile test and why is it important? And uh, well, so, since I'm on the West Coast, do I have to worry, Derek? Should I be I getting my survivalist gear? <laughs> well, you order? might, actually. I don't know. I, see, the, uh, the North Koreans have been testing. They've, they've held, I think, four tests, four weapons tests at this point uh, this month uh, involving five or six uh, different weapons. Uh, most recently... On Friday, last Friday, they tested a couple of uh, what they said were short-range kind of guided tactical weapons, uh, maybe cruise missiles. Uh, They did it again earlier this week, uh, Monday, I believe, um, again, claiming these were... What sounds like cruise missiles, I mean, they talk about guided tactical missiles. That's that's what it sounds like to me, but um, who knows? Uh, all these tests have involved uh, short-range, fairly short-range um, weapons, uh, which are the kinds of weapons that there's precedent uh, now that's been set that the United States doesn't get too riled up about these these kinds of tests. Um, but uh, the big news, I think, is just in the last day or two, uh, the North Koreans have suggested uh, that they may resume the kinds of tests that the United States does consider to be a big deal, uh, which are nuclear tests and intercontinental ballistic missile tests. Uh, and, uh, you know, this comes out of North Korean media, which uh, quotes Kim Jong-un presiding over a Politburo meeting, uh, talking about uh, bolstering uh, capabilities to, to to counter the Americans, to counter the United States, uh, which seems to mean, and he mentioned something about uh, all of North Korea's suspended activities, which includes uh, nuclear tests and ICBM tests, which they suspended uh, during the Trump administration to try and give, I guess, give diplomacy a chance. Uh, they feel like they're being ignored, I think, is the, the main consideration here. And to some extent, they are uh, by a Biden administration that uh, <laughs> has other issues to deal with. North Korea accused Washington of gangster-like logic and launched two missiles the very same day. So I think this is uh, some of this is maybe a play for um, attention. Uh, some of it may have to do with uh, the state of the North Korean economy, which is just starting to reopen after a good two-year lockdown because of COVID. Uh, that probably, again, you know, it's hard to, to get uh, uh, to say what exactly is happening in North Korea, but probably really uh, had a devastating effect on on the North Korean people. Um, 
they're just starting to reopen from that. But I think, you know, uh, some a good foreign policy spat is a way to distract attention domestically. And it's also a way to maybe um, force some negotiations with the United States about increasing humanitarian aid or something uh, of that nature or allowing uh, an increase in humanitarian aid. So uh, it's hard to say exactly what they're getting at here. Maybe they really will start. Uh, doing these tests again. I think the threat, though, is is aimed at um, kind of getting the attention of the United States. So what is China doing in response to this? I haven't seen anything from China. I mean, they, they're, when I say North Korea's economy is reopening, what I mean is they're starting rail traffic basically uh, into China again, which means there will be commerce across that border, which is the, the lifeline really for North Korea. It's cut off from uh, just about every other part of the world. Uh, I haven't seen any response to this latest, you know, sort of threat to, to restart nuclear testing or ICBM testing. But, uh, uh, you know, they have consistently, the Chinese uh, have consistently denounced U.S. sanctions. They did so again uh, this week, I think on Thursday. Um, they, they don't, they tend not to criticize North Korea, although when the North Koreans are being especially provocative, they can, they might be, they might hear it from China. But in general, I think they're, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of sticking to course and calling for a end to sanctions and, and for more, uh, you know, so, sort of engagement with North Korea. Great. So we'll, we'll see how that story develops. Um, and Derek, uh, thanks. And we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek here uh, with Danny, as always. Uh, We've been, um, I I, I like the fact that uh, over the last few weeks, it seems like we've been tying up some loose ends on this show. And uh, uh, we had seen a Tusi on to finish his series on a two-parter, I guess, on uh, the Iran nuclear deal. We finished, although you guys haven't heard it yet, we finished our Vietnam series. Um, We've been kind of uh, closing off some things that we opened up uh, a few months ago. And along those lines, uh, we're very excited and and, uh, pleased to have returning to the program Ada Ferrer, uh, the Julius Silver Professor of History in Latin American and Caribbean Studies at uh, New York University, NYU. Her book, uh, Cuba and American History, uh, is available for purchase now. Please go do that uh, wherever you buy your books. Uh, it's an excellent book. It's an excellent history. Uh, she has already been on the show. She's a returning guest. But we're here to pick up where we left off with the uh, history of Cuba. Ada, thank you so much for coming on the program again. Well, thanks for having me again. You are willing to willing to brave it a second time. That's, that's always, a, always a good sign, I think. <laughs> so why don't we, um, for people who either listened to your previous appearance, uh, which was a while ago, admittedly, uh, and have kind of, you know, let it uh, drift from their memory, or for people who are did not catch the last one, although you, you definitely should go back and listen to that, why don't we start with where we left off last time and sort of, uh, you can take us through, as the Spanish-American War is coming to an end, the Cuban people who have just fought a war of independence suddenly find themselves basically having replaced the Spanish boot with the American boot. Uh, Talk about what that was like for the Cuban people. And to start us off on on what we're going to be talking about today, sort of what were the discussions and the the sort of 
processes that happened in the United States leading up to the Platt Amendment and, and sort of the establishment of a basically colonial system over Cuba. Right. Well, like some of your listeners who listened to your show maybe a couple of months ago and don't quite remember where we left off, I'm kind of in the same boat, though, I, of course, I know the that history um, pretty well. So, um, you know, as you said, the Americans intervened at the end of a 30-year process and a 30-year struggle for Cuban independence. And um, that intervention in the Spanish-American War ended with the occupation, a four-year military occupation by the United States. So uh, when the Spanish flag came down, the American flag went up right away. Uh, The U.S., there was a U.S. military governor, John Brooke, and then Leonard Wood, and they determined things like who would vote and what local budgets were like and who would hold local office initially. They tried to limit the right of Cuban uh, people to vote uh, by putting in place things like um, literacy and property uh, requirements for voting. Cubans challenged them on that, and so they they didn't get away with that. But the thing that the Cubans couldn't challenge them on was the Platt Amendment. So basically what the Americans did is they they kept changing the goalpost. You know, they intervened in the war and said they would leave when Cuba was pacified. Then Cuba was pacified. And then they said, well, we'll leave when Cubans prove themselves capable of self-government. Uh, it's a nebulous ask. And, you know, it, and it, it was an enormous act of, 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 of arrogance to assume that Americans would be the ones to judge that, right? But uh, then when Cubans had peaceful elections and wrote a constitution and proved themselves capable of of ruling themselves, the Americans changed the goalpost again and basically said, "The the thing that will prove that Cubans can ultimately govern themselves is Cuban approval of the Platt Amendment. And uh, the Platt Amendment, written by Senator Orville Platt, gave uh, the U.S. the right of intervention in Cuba whenever uh, they determined that property or well-being was was, uh, threatened. The U.S. could intervene militarily with no invitation, without an invitation from the Cuban government. It limited the Cubans' ability to um, enter into treaties with third governments. It limited the ability of Cubans to uh, incur debt, Cuban government to incur debt. Uh, It set aside land for the Guantanamo Naval Base. So it was, um, as one uh, as one Afro-Cuban senator said at the time, with this, we only have a, a fiction of a republic. Uh, and so the Cubans tried resisting the Platt Amendment. They voted against it uh, in the Constitutional Convention twice. But ultimately, they realized if we don't accept the Platt Amendment, the Americans will never leave. So they accepted it. Uh, and with that, the Americans left on May 20th, 1902. But the, the U.S. continued uh, to, to have enormous power, uh, political and military, because of, the, because of the Platt Amendment. 
So one question that I'm interested in is the character of U.S. empire, because this is, of course, the great age of the liberal empires, the British and the French, and then later the, the United States. So could you maybe contextualize the post-Platt Amendment place that Cuba plays in the larger firmament of U.S. empire? You know, um, if I recall correctly from uh, uh, reading my comps, that 1902 was also the year the, you know, the so-called Filipino insurrection ends, and the United States has a more formal presence in, in the Philippines and it does in Cuba, same with Puerto Rico. Right. So how does Cuba play into this? Because in, in some sense, it, it's it's typical, and in some sense, it's very unique. Um, and I'd love to hear uh, the larger contextualization of that, yeah. especially because your, your book is, the, your, of your book subtitle. Yeah. Yeah. So I think part of the reason that, um, that the U.S., you know, the, the U.S. is clearly an, an empire, uh, and it clearly is seeking to limit the sovereignty of places like Cuba and uh, the Philippines and and um, and Puerto Rico and other other places as well. But you know, empire is not necessarily carte blanche, right? And an empire and <clears throat> any kind of intervention or uh, invasion doesn't occur on empty land on blank space, right? The, the U.S. is entering into these complex. Uh, rich, deep, textured social fields. And in the case of Cuba, they're entering after, as I said, this 30-year struggle. So there were all kinds of, of limits that Cubans tried to place on what they could do. So that meant the U.S. could not rule the way that um, that they would, the way they would have preferred, right? They had to, they had to be more, to, you know, kind of diplomatic about it. They couldn't uh, rule with as heavy a hand, uh, as they ended up doing in um, in other places, so and also I think in part because of the the long history of U.S. Cuban relations and the the interest of the U.S. public in Cuba, and the fact that um, the U.S. public had before the intervention so supported the idea of Cuban independence that I think there would have also been a lot of internal resistance to overt. Uh, colonization in Cuba as well. So right after the plot amendment is approved by the Cubans, I believe Guantanamo Bay opens up. And so is that indicative of the type of relationship that um, uh, Cuba and the United States will have? And what is that's a very peculiar arrangement. So how did that come to be? And what does that suggest about the relations between the two countries? Yeah, well, you know, it's part of what was in the the Platt Amendment, right? The 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 use of of Cuban land for uh, coaling and naval stations, and so that's what uh, Guantanamo uh, became. It doesn't become a full fledged base until a little later, but the the, the relationship and uh, the use of the use of the land by the U.S. gets codified beyond the Platt Amendment in a permanent treaty signed uh, about a year later, the same year, actually, that that the U.S. goes into Panama. And uh, also, you know, under very similar circumstances, right, um, there's you have Panamanian independence in which the U.S. played a part, Panamanian independence from Colombia, and then you have the establishment of the uh, of the canal zone ruled by the U.S. So that happens at the same time, which is also part of the context of U.S. empire, which you were asking about before. But I think what's important is one of the, one of the many things that's important to note is that, you know, the U.S. empire is, is operating on, 
in multiple fields, on multiple fields at once. So on the one hand, you have the Platt Amendment, which, uh, which points to a future of political and military intervention. You have the Platt Amendment, which is a, a you know, creates this unusual territory on Cuban soil that is outside of Cuban sovereignty. And then at the same time, you have uh, an economic policy that does the same on the economic realm, and that's the, the reciprocity treaty. That's one of the first treaties um, enacted between the two governments after independence. And that, that treaty makes it really hard for Cubans to develop their own uh, independent industries. It makes it much easier for the U.S. to uh, to export all kinds of products to Cuba that then limit the production of those products uh, within Cuba itself. Uh, it grants all these um, privileges to Cuban sugar in the U.S. market, but what's happening at the same time is that more and more of that sugar is U.S. owned. So that the, the so-called benefits from the reciprocity treaty, right, which are supposed to privilege Cuban sugar, the profits from that accrue overwhelmingly to American companies, which hold about two-thirds of all, produce about two-thirds of Cuban sugar a couple of decades into the 20th century. So it seems like, you know, the promise of liberal empire is that it would develop indigenous industries. But then, of course, what actually happens is the capitalists wind up, to, quote unquote, developing the industries and then extorting all of the profits, which is, I think, a story you see throughout the history of U.S. Latin American relations over the last two centuries. But there is there is there is resistance before World War One. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the U.S. Um, comes back to Cuba twice. There's an, an occupation and then there's a rebellion that that they uh, that the United States, uh, an Afro-Cuban rebellion, I believe, that the United States has to put down. So what are the causes of, of, of that? I know the first president of Cuba resigned. So what seems like there's a lot of political firm, ferment right before World War One. And so what's yeah. going on? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, it, it's, it's curious because the Platt Amendment and in some ways it advances U.S. interests. On the other hand, it kind of makes the U.S. captive in a way, right? Because what the, what Cubans realize is that as long as the Platt Amendment is in place, there can be no such thing as a truly autonomous Cuban politics. Because what opponents have to do is create enough unrest that there's a that basically the U.S. will be moved to intervene. So the U.S. and there are, so the and even Americans, for, some Americans foresaw this, right? All opponents would have to do is create enough trouble to get the U.S. to intervene and unseat their opponents. And so uh, there were two, there were multiple interventions. Uh, there was another full scale occupation in 1906, from 1906 to 1909, after something called the Liberal revolution in which many veterans from the wars of independence, many of them black, but not only black, uh, uh, mobilized in support of, of the liberal party, which, which lost an election that they widely saw as illegitimate. Uh, black veterans in particular, because you have to think in the wars of independence, the vast majority of people who did the fighting were, were, were black men, many of them either former slaves or the sons of former slaves. And they were particularly um, disappointed with the results of independence and with the results of the republic. And so they, they lobbied for more jobs, for more representation, for ends of discrimination in, uh, in employment. 
for more for a greater role in politics and the civil service, etc. And at every point, they were kind of beat back and said, "No, this is inconvenient. This is divisive. You can't do that." And so what they did is they created a party called the Independent Party of Color. Uh, to lobby for the rights of, of Black Cubans. And the party was illegalized. The Cuban legislature said there was no such thing. There could be no such thing as a party based on on, on color. Um, and Liberal so they- anti-racism kind of, right? Yeah, ex- exactly. And so they, they, they staged a protest in 1912 that then became- uh, that, you know, then morphed in what is known in Cuban history as the Little War uh, or the race war of 19, uh, the race war of 1912. And a lot of the violence was actually um, directed by the government and by civilians they deputized against the black protesters, a majority of whom were unarmed. So it's one of the um, ugliest episodes in the history of the Cuban Republic in which you have, you know, Cubans uh, both of, you know, groups of Cubans, both of whom had fought for Cuban independent, independence, suddenly kind of face off against each other, precisely over, you know, the meanings and the limits of Cuban nationality, really. So is there an increasing racial division in the post-independence period that we're seeing, you know, um, there, there uh, are, are divisions along um, racial lines in terms of occupation, in terms of politics, in terms of segregation, or is that not something that 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 really happens in Cuba? Well, I mean, yes, yes, and no. There was. It's not like there wasn't division beforehand, right? Slavery ended in Cuba only in 1886. So, of mm. course, you're going to have divisions by education, occupation, and all that in the in the 19th century. I think what what is important about the 20th century is that because the independence movement was so multiracial in its composition, because it it explicitly pronounced against racism and racial discrimination, I think the expectations of Black veterans were that that would change. And, and it didn't change. And their, you know, discrimination uh, continued. And so, um, so it's, I wouldn't say that there was necessarily that there was more, but there was more disappointment at the lack of change in that area. So how does Cuba respond to World War I and especially American entry? My understanding is Cuba entered as well in the same year, yeah. uh, 1917. So is that is that a big moment? Because obviously I was trained as a North Atlantic historian. World War I is a big moment. But is it in terms of Cuban history or is it just not yeah, as big a, well, a deal? Well, I mean, the, the entry in the war itself was largely symbolic. So, uh, But it was hugely important. Uh, in other ways that have less to do with World War I per se, or that have less to do with military history. So there's two ways in which it's, it's important. It's a hu- the war ends up being a huge impetus to, to, the, to two, two major industries in Cuba. One is sugar, right? Because that, you know the, the, what had been these sugar beet fields of Europe were, were destroyed. They became battlefields. So the price of sugar escalated enormously it just soared and a lot and so sugar i mean cuban sugar became one of the most valuable things in the world i mean so the the prices increased like hundreds of percent um and there was all kinds of you know borrowing and buying on that really high price which then ended up producing a a terrible fall afterwards but so it was a, a huge impetus to cuban uh sugar 
And it's in that period that you also have greater and greater American involvement in Cuban sugar really grows in that period. But the second thing that the war did was uh, help create a, a tourist industry in Cuba because Americans who had who had gone to Europe on vacation couldn't anymore. And so they began going to Cuba. And it's in that period and then immediately following that U.S. tourism to Cuba really takes off. And it also ends up coinciding with U.S. prohibition, right? So that uh, right, so course. that Americans like to go to Cuba to drink and gamble, which was also to party, illegal. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I want to ask about that in one second. But before we do, a question of, of kind of intra-Latin American solidarity. What is the Cuban response to things like the invasion of Veracruz um, and, and the Mexican Revolution and Pancho Villa's incursion into the United States, um, particularly because obviously Che and Fidel, correct me if I'm wrong, meet in Mexico City. And, and you know, there's this inter-Latin American thing happening at yeah. the same time as well. So is, is there any response? I'd be, I'd be curious to hear. Yeah. So, I mean, Mexico ends up being hugely important uh, for Cuban politics, less in this period uh, of World War One than than um, than shortly after. There's, you know, one of the major forces in Cuban politics beginning in the 1920s are students. And uh, the students have very strong connections to Mexico City. They see themselves kind of represented in some sense by by the history of the Mexican Revolution. Many of them travel to Mexico. Many of them escape to Mexico when, when they get in trouble in Cuba. So in terms of the, you know, Cuban politics going forward, you have this young left progressive force that's going to remain hugely important in Cuban politics through the 1950s that sees itself as very, not just Cuban, but as very Latin American. And that, um, so, yeah, so, so, so they, um, so they have a, and if you read their writings, they, they display a very strong uh, pan Latin American consciousness uh, often with Mexico at the center. And and this foreshadows things like forgive my pronunciation, but like Prensa Latina and sort of these like desires to have a trans Latin American solidarity, which I find really compelling. But Derek, I think you had a question. Sure, I, I wonder if you could um, just take us through kind of the interwar period, and particularly, um, you know, I think there was a, a a drop at one point in sugar prices, kind of globally, and. Um, you know, talk about the effect that that had on the Cuban economy and uh, the rise of uh, the Machado presidency in that that period, and uh, you know, sort of coinciding obviously with the uh, the Great Depression and the economic collapse. What was going on uh, in Cuba during these uh, these tumultuous, needless yeah. to say, uh, times? Yeah, no, they they were very um, tumultuous times. So, uh, and there's a lot that that we could say about them. Let me think what the what the best thing um, to do would be. I think in part because the price of sugar soars and then uh, and then drops. And in that moment where it soared, you had sugar barons, you know, buying machinery and taking out loans. So that basically they had the, when prices drop, the carpet kind of ripped from under them. And what ends up happening is that American banks end up uh, owning a lot of that, of that property. You had uh, the only there were all these bank failures that basically the banks that survived in Cuba were mostly banks that had parent companies in the U.S. So in terms of um, American economic 
power, it was further solidified um, in that period of the of the 1920s. And then you had the stock market crash, which you know reverberated around the world and which produced a, a great economic depression in Cuba. So uh, you had you know the sugar workers were making you know less you know people said that they were making wages comparable to the days of slavery you had a cuban government that had didn't have money to pay teachers you had you know in the same way that you have photographs uh of the us during the the great depression uh there's you know similar photographs coming out of cuba by the same um the same photographers. So it's a, it's a period of economic hardship of, you know, there's, there's hunger, you have people begging on the streets, you have, uh, you know, all the things that we associate with depression in the U S on top of that, that's followed, that's accompanied by, by a political crisis. So you have increasing numbers of, of labor strikes. You have sugar workers on strike in the East. Many of them are, are, are the, the communist party is very active uh, in this period, especially in Eastern Cuba, where a lot of the American sugar plantations are, and you have them forming uh, Soviets or workers' councils uh, to to rule, uh, you know, in in the in the sugar mills. So you have that. You have students, uh, as I said before, who are becoming a major force in this period, who are uh, also closing down the university, uh, staging their own protests. People talk about the nineteen, you know, this this period of the late. 20s and early 30s as the kind of the rise of mass politics in Cuba as as elsewhere uh, in in Latin America. So it was uh, a tumultuous period, as you said. The the president Machado, who came in as a popular elected official, then uh, changed the constitution to remain in power, and a lot of the op- so the opposition was it was broad. You know, it was it was workers and students and. Uh, and so on, but but the 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 complaints were also broad. It was about it was about uh, about the economic situation, about wages, about uh, about political freedoms, about elections. So you just had massive uh, mobilization that, in the end, Machala was unable to survive. And the things that that put the nail in the coffin for um, for Machala or the immediate triggers to his ouster were um, the fact that the U.S. withdrew support, right? Um, and also that the, that the army withdrew support. And so in that context, uh, it was, so, so it was a combination of, of all those things that produced his ouster in 1933. And, and, and I should say that I narrate this much more uh, clearly and beautifully in the book. <laughs> oh, everyone definitely, definitely buy the book. Uh, so I, I have a couple of uh, questions. So one, could you maybe describe the Cuban left's relationship to the Soviet Union in this very early period? Because um, you said they were forming literal Soviets. Yeah. So what do they are? Are they someone? Are, is it a group that is looking to Moscow as an inspiration? Do they think that it's not going to quite make sense in the political economy of of Cuba or the context of Cuba? What is that relationship in in this twenties period? Yeah, that's a great. It's a great question. So the Cuban Communist Party was founded in nineteen twenty five, 
And one of the founders is a man named Julio Antonio Mella, M-E-L-L-A, a fascinating uh, figure who ends up having to escape to Mexico and is assassinated uh, in Mexico at the end of the decade. But, you know, in his writings, he and, and the students in general, are they're, they're, they're writing a lot about the Russian Revolution. They are, they are, very well aware of what's going on in the in the not just in the Soviet Union but uh, but globally, but Maya and others are also also often write about how what was developed in the Soviet Union cannot just be uh, you know lifted wholesale and imported uh, to Cuba, and so there is. So I would say that, they, yes, they are looking to the Soviet Union and there are members of the Cuban Communist Party who spend time in the Soviet uh, Union. But what I would say is that there's also a current within Cuban communism that is also very nationalist. And so they are, you know, they're, they're, they're reading Marx, they're reading Lenin, they're reading about the the, the Russian Revolution, but they're also reading Marti. They're thinking about the U.S. They're thinking about politics. So they, what they see is they see the two struggles kind of inseparable: this economic struggle for for economic justice and the struggle against uh, against U.S. imperialism. Right. So they they see those as as intimately connected. So from the extreme left to the extreme right, a lot of people listening might have an image of Cuba, particularly in the 20s, related to prohibition and the mafia. Is there any truth to that? Or what is the truth behind that relationship? So my layman's understanding is that they owned hotels and they used Cuba as a base in order to smuggle liquor. Is that correct? And what is the uh, developing relationship between, or what one might say, sort of transnational organized crime and uh, the Machado dictatorship, if there is one? Yeah. So... I mean, yes. So prohibition was hugely important for Cuban history, not just in terms of of, of the way it uh, propelled the tourist industry, but also in the beginnings of the relationship with the mob. So the so so the the U.S. mob did use Cuba as a transshipment point for liquor. After the end of prohibition, it does uh, it does other things. Use it as a transshipment point for narcotics. Uh, it builds hotels and and casinos. The the bulk of the relationship happens after the 1920s it's not really it's not really so they're present in cuba and they're interested in cuba but it doesn't really take off until the until the second half of the 1940s um, yeah. um and, and we'll talk about that because yeah. everyone listening to this podcast wants to know about jfk at some yeah. point. Um, <laughs> um so uh so correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the reasons that Machado falls, I would imagine, is that FDR institute comes to office first of all, and then he institutes uh, the good neighbor policy. Right. Um, so, in what ways does a good neighbor policy relate to the rise of Fulgencio Batista, um, and what is the relationship between FDR and Batista in this early uh, period? And uh, Batista, of course, the dictator who rules until the revolution in '59. So, um, it's a very important figure in Cuban history. And what role does the United States play in his rise? Yeah, it, it plays a, a huge role. So, uh, you know, Machado is is ousted uh, in August of of nineteen thirty-three. So, um, you know, FDR has been in office for not that long, right? Really, a question of of uh, of months. And basically, Machado essentially calls the U.S.'s bluff and says, I'm not leaving. The, the U.S. is trying to pressure him into leaving, into stepping down. And he's saying, I'm not stepping down. 
And he says, making me step down is U.S. interference. Go ahead, uh, invade. I'm not stepping down. So in a, he knew that the Americans didn't want to invade at that point, that that's the last thing FDR wanted. Um, so but but he's ousted from within by the by the by the military uh, and by um, students and and workers. But what's interesting is in, in the ousting of, of, of Machado, it's. It's not the it's not the upper echelons of the military. It's what's called you know it's the lower commissioned officers. Batista at the time was uh, a sergeant, and so it's sergeant. Oh wow, he's yeah. that low. He was a, usually colonels, right? No, like, he was he was. Yeah. They, that's why it's called the sergeants' revolt. It was basically the 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 sergeants and, and corporals wanted were complaining that you know they didn't have enough opportunity. They weren't getting their uh, increases, etc. So they complained to their superiors, and the, you know this is in um, in September of um, of, uh, of of nineteen thirty three, and the superiors don't listen. And basically, uh, Batista takes over the main army barracks in, in that sergeant's revolt, and then the students hear about it. And they, the students show up at the at the camp, at the barracks, and say, wait a minute, don't you realize that if you control the army, you control the government, and we could make a revolution? So there's this unlikely alliance between the lower army, represented by Batista, who then becomes head of the army, and by and by the students. And so that's what's that's what people call the revolution of 33. And but it's a really divided new government because the students are left progressive. Uh, their minister, the minister of the interior, who's appointed as a young guy who's, who nationalizes some U.S. property, always sides with workers, uh, et cetera. But then you have Batista, and that's not that wasn't his goal, right? So, so you have the two of them at odds. The U.S. refuses to recognize the new government, and what the U.S. ambassador does is deal always with Batista, and they flatter Batista, and you're the one who's capable of keeping order. And Batista asks them, "What will it take for you to recognize?" The government and the U.S. government, the U.S. ambassador basically says it will take a new government. And so Batista essentially deposes the revolutionary government and then installs uh, a puppet president. And it's very complicated. But I think if, if you think about what the what the takeaway is, there, I mean, there's a couple. One is this idea of frustrated revolution. Here in 33, you had this popular, really popular uh, revolution that wanted a new constitution, wanted to uh, some kind of agrarian reform, women's vote. They, the new government decided to that its, its army would no longer train with the U.S., but with Mexico, right? So it had a pan-Latin American vision. Anyway, all of that was frustrated when the U.S. refused to recognize it and push for uh, Batista to, to depose uh, the revolution. So one takeaway is that the frustrated, the idea of frustrated revolution. And the second one is that there is, there's a long history of progressive solidarities and alliances in Cuban history between students and workers and um, even urban professionals, right? Um, you know, and that's going to be hugely important for what happens later in the 1950s. So was this also, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is also around the exact same time that the U.S. is supporting other dictators throughout the region, Samosa in Nicaragua, Trujillo in, in the Dominican Republic. So is this part of a larger grand strategy on behalf of the United States in order to manage, quote unquote, restless neo-colonial possessions is that they would kind of choose ahead, deal with that person, 
try to uh, protect U.S. economic interests. And is Cuba part of this larger story? Is that an accurate reading of what the yeah, you know, I mean, FDR? Yeah. I mean, in, in some ways, sure. And, you know, when when American officials are describing what's going on in the 1933 revolution, they keep saying this is a threat to uh, this is the threat to American interests. It's a threat to American property. This is, they, you know, they call the, the the new government, frankly, communistic, so on. So, yes, I think it, it's part of that same moment. And of course, in the Cold War, it's going to, you know, it'll morph yet again. <laughs> On steroids. Yeah. Uh, and and so also in 34, there's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Cuban-American Treaty of Relations, and that basically makes Guantanamo kind of permanent. The U.S. will pay rent on it. The U.S. gives uh, up its right to intervene. Right. And so that seems that's like the plat amend- that's when the plat amendment is finally abrogated. So after decades, the yeah. plat amendment yeah. is ended. Uh, and then I think the next moment that's really crucial to talk about is the 40 constitution. So what is this constitution? Uh, how does it relate to Batista and why is it important in the larger context yeah. of, of Cuban history? Yeah, it's, um, it's a liberal progressive constitution that is passed with enormous support and engagement by the Cuban public. There, you know, the, the, the deliberations are all broadcast on radio. People listen, they write in letters. So it's a moment that it's a moment of, of real uh, democratic promise. Uh, you have multiple political parties represented, uh, you know, liberals, conservatives, the socialists that, you know, it's, uh, it's, you have black delegates, you have shoemakers and, you know, there's a range of of professions uh, and occupations represented among the people um, who are delegates. So it's, it's important for that reason and also, I mean, what's interesting, and it's not just, I mean, this is, it's not just the Cuban government. This is another moment in which you can see parallels across Latin America with other liberal uh, or progressive, socially progressive uh, charters in uh, in Mexico and Colombia and Bolivia. But there's two things. One is that there's an emphasis on individual rights. So, but there's also an emphasis on on what you might call social rights and social welfare. So things are written into the constitution, like the eight hour workday. You know, a lot of what we think of as like New Deal policies in the U.S. become written into the U.S., uh, the Cuban constitution, right? So they become part of the fundamental law of the land, right? And things like, so the, you know, there were limits uh, among the other things that were passed were things like limits on the size of land holdings, limits on uh, foreign ownership of land, uh, workers' rights, women's rights. Um, anyway, you, you get the idea. Uh, and so it's important for what it represents in that moment and for the promise it seems to represent. And Cuban leadership also, uh, among all parties, you know, in some ways they thought that this was the first true Cuban constitution because the first one was written while the U.S. was present as an occupying power and the first one included in the appendix the Platt Amendment. So they saw this as the first true uh, Cuban constitution. Uh, For all the promise that it seems to herald, it's it's never really put into practice. The, the, The laws that would have been required uh, to make it real and effective on the ground are never passed. And then in 1950, you know, you have widespread corruption in the governments that are, that, that are elected in its aftermath. And 
1952, you have a coup by Fulgencio Batista, who was then running for president, was third and, 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 and sure to lose. And he stages a, a military coup and takes power. And, and obviously, then the, the 1940 constitution is no longer in effect at all. Um, and so in the revolution to topple Batista, whether it's Fidel Castro leading it or anyone else, the idea of restoring the 1940 constitution becomes the first and most important rallying cry. So for that reason, the 40 constitution is also important. So one thing to go back to the 40 constitution I'm curious about, is there any interaction between the early Batista regime and someone like Lazaro Cardenas, who's trying to accomplish similar things in Mexico at the exact same time of the late 1930s? And is this a moment of trans-Latin American exchange, or is it they're responding kind of individually to similar contextual problems? Well, I mean, I think I mean there there is this is a Latin American moment in terms of I mean you can find echoes of what's in the or or the other way around what's in the Cuban constitution the, the socially progressive elements of the Cuban constitution appear in uh, in in other countries and the closest constitution to the 1940 constitution is the is the is the mexican one um a little bit earlier so so there is so you can talk about a latin american moment in that way i'm not sure i would push it to saying that there's a similarity between uh batista and um and and cardenas so much because early batista is before that you know batista is essentially is takes control in 1934 and he enacts a brutal program of repression against all opponents, uh, against workers, against uh, students, definitely. And so it's not until um, he's kind you know, it's not until he's achieved this kind of, you know, it's not until he's obliterated the opposition that he wants to, uh, that he calls for the constitutional convention. And what he thinks is that the constitutional convention will give him more legitimacy and more popularity. So I would not identify, even though there's elements of Batista, the, you know, the populism, he did enact some minor uh, agrarian uh, policies, you know, to, to give land, etc. But I would not, um, I would not identify him with the most progressive elements of the constitution, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you about as we're entering the, or as we're in the 1940s now. um, And I, I, I know you mentioned tourism briefly earlier in the interview, but I'm curious as to, you know, uh, as tourism becomes a bigger economic factor, what kind of effect does that have? Um, both on the Cuban economy and and more broadly on kind of Cuban society. What what during this uh, this period? And this is sort of the uh, you know the mafia coming in and owning hotels and and uh, that sort of thing is part of this. But but more broadly, what what if, what impact did tourism have? Yeah, well, I mean, even from the as early as the late 1920s, some Cubans, uh, govern- some politicians began to refer to it as the second crop, right? As important as um, as sugar, and there's and there's there's elements of that. People also worried from the start that it would that as it became more um, powerful, and as more and more Americans traveled to Cuba, and as Cuban business catered to them, that it would somehow dilute. Uh, Cuban uh, Cuban culture, right? So store owners, you know, store. There were all these businesses that popped up specifically to cater to um, to American 
uh, to American tourists. So it changed, but you know, that, I, that kind of effect was felt mostly in cities and mostly in cities like, you know, in Havana in particular. Right. So, I, so it's hard to talk about an, an effect in terms of daily lights that would have been even across the country that, um, that didn't happen in terms of, of the mafia, the mafia was, was very invested in, uh, in American tourism, right. You know, buying and, and, um, and, and building hotels. Many of them were also involved in gambling, right? So they ran uh, casinos and, uh, and nightclubs and also were involved in the, in, in the narcotics industry um, in, in Cuba. But, you know, again, that's so, so I think in certain neighborhoods in, in Havana, that would have been felt people would have seen it on the, you know, in, in daily life would have encountered it. It's not something that, 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 that most Cubans had to deal with day to day um, across the island, but but hugely important in terms of the economy, and in terms of um, of the way Cuban politics operated, because for the for the mafia to operate in Cuba, they had to break Cuban laws, and the, often the Cuban governments were aware of that, and they turned a blind eye. So there was uh, a kind of style of Cuban politics that that arose as the uh, as the mafia gained more power they were kind of codependent could we then talk about the mafia um and you said they become more important in the late 1940s in what ways and in what and why did they become more important at this post-world war ii moment well you know they had wanted to become important before, but couldn't. There were too many limits on that, right? So uh, the 1933 revolution was really tumultuous. Uh, in, then there was World War One. So it's really in the post-war period uh, that the opportunity is there for them fully, uh, fully to do that. And then uh, you had you had Cuban politicians who became involved in those same industries. So the mafia worked closely with, with Cuban senators, with Cuban judges, with Cuban presidents who gave them visas and who gave them, and who gave them the concessions to run, run the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the casinos and so on. So I think because of these external factors, whether it was the revolution of 33, the world war two, there just wasn't the opportunity for that for that before. So I think that's part of the, that's part of the answer. Um, so why don't we end on this question? Maybe you could just take us to the, to the 52 coup and what, what are the proximate causes for that? There's been decades of going back and forth and political change and economic change and the United States has become a global hegemon. So how does that affect what is going on in the fifties and the precursor to what everyone listening wants to know about, which is the 59 revolution, but we'll end with the 52 oh, revolution. No. Leave them the, wanting more. Okay. All right. Say. Okay. Well, uh, I should say that, you know, the, the, the section of the book on 59 and beyond is probably about a third of the book. Uh, so, so yes, buy the book and, and read the part of 59, uh, and beyond. So, uh, in terms of, of 52, you have, um, Fidel, I mean, sorry, Fulgencio Batista stages a school knowing he's not going to win the election, right? And he manages to take power and take over the military barracks in something like an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And so, I mean, he knows what to do and he has the support of the army to do it. Uh, 
he immediately there is backlash against some. So Fidel Castro was also running in the 1952 election for a Senate seat uh, as part of a reform party called the Orthodox Party. uh, And that was an anti-corruption party, hugely important in terms of civic civic culture, civic opposition to, um, to, to government corruption and government repression. Uh, it's a, a, a fascinating, important uh, party. Its leader, its founder was a man named Eduardo Chivas, who was a very popular politician and radio personality. He committed suicide on the air. Uh, he had been running for president. Yeah, so he's a, a fascinating figure. And uh, Fidel Castro was a member of that, of that party. Uh, so anyway, so... So that party, that party would have done well in the fifty-two elections, but Fulgencio uh, Batista came in and staged the coup. Opponents tried to get the UN to intervene, a Pan American Association. Nothing happened. Fidel Castro, who was a lawyer, a young lawyer, brought um, a, a court case against Batista for you know not obeying the nineteen forty. Yeah, for for cooling exactly for and and, <laughs> and asked for a maximum sentence of over a hundred you know a hundred years. Of course the you know the court case went nowhere. And um yeah and so then basically Fidel Castro uh then use you know recruits among the youth wing of the Orthodox Party, which is that reform anti-corruption party, to uh to launch what 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 in what in retrospect or in hindsight would be called the beginning of the revolution, which was the 1953 attack on the Moncada barracks. Uh, But I think it's really important to note that uh, in retrospect, it's called the beginning of the revolution, but uh, at the time, you know, it was, it wasn't, (laughs) it was just, you know, it was a failed, uh, it was a failed attack on a barracks and the, and throughout the 1950s, if I can take us beyond 1952, one of the things that's most important and that sometimes surprises, I think, American readers who are so used to thinking about 1959 and so used to thinking about Fidel Castro that it's easy to read back and think of the revolution as Fidel Castro's revolution. But really, he was one revolutionary among many. Um, students were hugely important in the movement against Batista. Uh, and students of all kinds, you know, um, students who were members of, Catholic, of the Catholic youth, for instance, were, were very prominently opposed to, um, to Batista, housewives, women. It was a, there was civic opposition uh, to Batista that, that increasingly became uh, revolutionary and that brought in large segments of Cuban society beyond the guerrillas in the mountains, you know, led by Fidel Castro. So why don't we end on this question? Um, how did the U.S. respond to the Batista coup? They they were fine. <laughs> they, uh, they were, they were uh, cool with it. Yeah, they yeah were, what a shock. Yeah, yeah. they... Um, I don't have I, I I should I don't remember now, but you know if you think about the 1933 revolution and how the, the U.S. government never recognized the uh, the the Cuban. Um, the, the you know that revolutionary government it recognized Batista pretty quickly I think within the day maybe I mean don't quote me on that but oh, wow. very very quickly um, in 1959 they recognized the new government within within the week and less than a week yeah so uh, that that's really interesting so Ada Ferrer thank you so much again uh, everyone purchase her book Cuba an American 
history. And, and we'd love to have you back uh, and really go into the, the 50s and beyond if, if you'd be willing. Thank sure. you so much. <laughs> All right. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.